today's fuzzy logic is brought to you by three complicated compounds electrical and chemical mixes of great complexity and dare i say great beauty even and our theme today on fuzzy logic is the chemistry of life how did we come from a bowl of random chemicals into the things that we see around us into you and me and my name rod and eleanor and our guests welcome back to fuzzy logic dr charlie lineweaver good morning good morning now let's kick off with a slightly obscure but a related question of randomness so how does a random process like a bowl of chemicals in say what the early earth was like three point or four point something billion years ago to the things that we now have sitting in our studio now what is random is there actually such a thing as random charlie well you know what there's all different kinds of random and it's kind of like all different kinds of people um for example you could talk about uh, random things that you have in the kitchen right you could say do you have a random collection of uh, chemistry in your kitchen or not well you go out and buy some flour and sugar etc so i would say that is not random or if you could talk about is the traffic in canberra random well in some sense it's random car no car car no car but on the other hand there's a definite pattern to it there's a there's a time when there are lots of cars and time when there's little, little cars fewer cars so the idea of random has as many nuances to it, and you have to be very careful when you induce the, when you involve that word, because particularly because it's become a little bit of a, I don't know, a, a taboo word. Because creationists have said you start out with random, and here we have something non-random. Therefore, there's no way to get from random to non-random. Therefore, you know, God did it. And uh, I, I guess Darwinism has been invoked many times to say you start out with random things, and you end, oh, you select natural selection, and then you end up with something that has. Uh, that has an adapt. It is an adaption. Uh, on the other hand, you don't really start out with random. I would say that's very hard. For example, does the universe start out at random chemicals? Well, you can say, well, let's see. There's lots and lots of hydrogen, a little bit of helium, and then a tiny bits of other stuff too. So that's not really a random assortment of elements. Neither is the random assortment that you just invoked on the surface of the Earth from which life evolved. That wasn't random either. Ah, so do people often confuse randomness with complexity? Uh, so this is I don't know. I, I, I don't even... I don't know. Do you, well, Rod? <laughs> well, um, you could say there are lots of things in this room. There's lots of different chemicals and so on. But you just said that the collection of chemicals, say, in the studio right with us now, that's not really random at all. But it is complicated. Well, random is... It's, it's very few things in life are random, except maybe dice. You know, you roll a dice. But if you weight them a little bit, then it's not random. Actually, it's not random. Dice have one through six. Where Where's seven? Where's eight? Where's nine? You know, that's not a random selection of numbers. You don't put on a random number on those dice size. You have six, one, two, three, four, five, six, right? So it's very hard to find something random. Matter of fact, people have spent years of their lives trying to generate random number generators, trying to produce them, and it's not as easy as you might think. Oh, yes, I know from my own computing background that uh, there is no 
I don't know if anybody's really succeeded in generating a truly random number because the random function in the computer is based on the seed number of some sort, right. and that itself is not random. Right. So, it's, it, but the the question of today is how do you get life started? And rather than saying it came from a random selection of chemicals, what you do is you say what kind of chemicals were on the Earth in the four 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 and a half billion years ago, and then you start from there without invoking the word random because it really has too many uh, politically incorrect that's politically incorrect but uh, it's just a, so it's a limited limited help but let's just yeah. just quickly to finish off this question of random now you gave the example of throwing dice mm-hmm. right and you said that was random but when you look at it I also said it was non-random because it's only one through six you know twelve oh, will I, never I, okay so it's random but it's constrained if it's unweighted dice uh, and assuming and a, if you don't know exactly how you rolled it then it is random well if you were a able to model how the thing left your hand mm-hmm. and how it flew through the air, rotated, hit the table mm-hmm. and it bounced and bounced and bounced again. Mm-hmm. If you had enough information for, about the starting conditions mm-hmm. and about the physical forces that act mm-hmm. on the dice, yes. is it really random? Well, no, in that case it wouldn't be. Random has evolved. Random also means you don't know. But if you know, you know, if you roll it a little bit differently and you know exactly how differently, then you will know what that number is. So that's not random at all. That's a deterministic system. So Random means you don't know. Okay. At the, at the risk of getting into really difficult turf then, what does this mean <laughs> for free will? Oh, well, I don't want to talk about that because uh, I just uh, I don't believe in free will. I don't think it exists, but everybody else does. And so it really leads into a, a dead-end philosophical, political discussion. And so, uh, Unless you want to go there. I'm perfectly willing to go there. But uh, we, you and I, I'm sure, have so many disagreements about it that we won't make much progress. But it's your choice. All right, we, we, well, let, let, we, <laughs> it's your choice. You the- <laughs> we, 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 we won't dwell too long on this, but I do recall reading that book, which uh, I must just say I only understood about 2% of it, uh, Godel Escher Bar. Mm -hmm. which is a fantastic read, Mm -hmm. at least the bit I understood. Mm -hmm. But in that, he describes a machine. I can't remember how it goes. And everything is a mechanical and a chemical process in some way. Everything like our roll of the dice... We, if you knew enough about the starting condition, it all is governed by the laws of the universe, and therefore it's a preset outcome. Well, what you just said might have been true before quantum mechanics, but we're in a quantum mechanical world now, and therefore we have randomness built into the fabric of of reality, and therefore what you just said applies only if we lived in a Newtonian world. Ah, uh, okay. Now I've got to say that some of the things that happen on fuzzy logic are quite random. <laughs> <laughs> But Eleanor's not random at all. She's got a question. Oh, well, I was, I was simply going to bring up exactly what you've just mentioned. We were talking about modelling uh, the throw of a dice, which is a macro process. It's something that's affected by Newtonian forces. But, but then um, Charlie beat me to it with the word quantum. As soon as we're looking at um, that sort of level of, of particle interaction, that, that modelling system that we currently rely on to figure out how you're throwing a baseball or what's going to happen when you drop something down a hill does does leave the room completely um and i and i at the risk of sort of pushing us onto the life uh track a little bit early um the very nature of evolution is the accumulation of of mutation and mutation seems to me to be something that um is is quite random is that something that is small enough to be governed by by quantum effects or or can we predict how dna is going to mutate and how that's going to affect um the evolution of a of an organism well i i guess i would I'm one of the few biologists who think that mutations are not random. First of all, the, the 
if, let's suppose that they were. I mean, most biologists would say, yes, mutations are random, and then natural selection produces something that's adaptive. You know, let's say I wanted to get your telephone number. I could get it from rolling a dice, one through ten. Oh, there's a number. There's no. Oh, it doesn't help to get you. Or I, uh, in other words, you can select things, and only after that selection do you become non-random. Um, but uh, mutations, I, I suspect that life is smart enough to be able to protect some part of its DNA more than it re- protects other parts, and to repair some parts more than it repairs the other. And that means that the mutations that get passed on to the next generation, even before selection uh, uh, by the environment, are non-random. So often when we say random, really what we're saying is unpredictable. I, in some sense, yeah. It's constrained, but we can't predict. So there will be a mutation in the DNA, like you say, but we don't know what that mutation will be, but there are, it is bounded in some way. Well, it, it reminds me of what I've proposed several times, and that is what I call the sperm test. So we take about a billion of your sperm, and we look at the places in it where there'll be mutations. You have a certain genome, right? A, about three billion base pairs, and there's a certain, you know, ACGT, AC, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for three billion times. Now, the point is, when you produce a sperm, are you producing the exact same sequence or not? And the answer is, no, you don't. There will be mutations. The question then is, are those mutations randomly placed in those sperm that you're trying to fertilize an egg with? And the answer is, no, they're not. There are pl- hot spots and cold spots of those mutations. And so even the random, what we call random mutations, are not random. We're trying to figure out why and where those hotspots occur. In other words, the, the genes that are conserved over evolutionary time are probably not just conserved because of selection effects, but also because of the types of mutations that are your, your DNA has been selected to be flexible here and less flexible there. So a, a really interesting thing about the mutation in DNA is if it happens too fast, you're going to end up with an unviable organism if it's too radical. So it must be constrained quite nicely. So it's just enough to allow uh, a process of evolution to to end up so well, that that depends on where in the DNA you are. If you are if you are playing around with something that's very fundamental that cannot take much playing around with, then you're going nowhere and you'll be selected out. But if you're playing around with something that hey this uh, that you're more likely to produce something that's useful, then you're you're your DNA allows you to do that. Kind of like fixing a car. If you're going to play around with the steering wheel color or something or this upholstery, that's fine. You can do mutate, mutate all you want. But when it comes to, let's say, the bore of the cylinder, then if you 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 change that by some tiny fraction, you're going to get too much or too little com- compression, and then you're going to start. So there's some changes that just won't work. But my right. point, Same my, with DNA. Yeah, but my point is that the variability in the uh, mutation is a mutation rate, or what do, you, what do you mean by variation? Oh, okay, so there's the type, like you say, the, the steering wheel versus the bore of the cylinder, or the speed of it. But whatever, the combination, the, the variability of the DNA mutation is enough that we have interesting forms of life evolve, but it, it, we don't get too many failures. Is that... Or, or you just don't see the failures by Well, I think definition. it's a little bit simplistic. It depends on what kind of organism you are. If you're a virus, for example, and you want to... Uh, mutates uh, some parts of you that that's really useful but on the other hand if you that you're as a virus you have certain parts of you that 
pierce through the cell walls of the things that you want to infect, and those are very well conserved. If you play around with those, you're probably going to die. Same thing with any organism. Let's say you're a bacteria in a hospital and there's a new antibiotic. You want to play around as much as you can with the antibiotic resistance genes, the genes that lend the resistance to the, and you don't want to play around with the most of the other stuff. So it really depends on what the threat you're, what what kind of challenge you're facing. If you're facing challenges that wrong, wrong, one challenge after another, then you better increase that DNA. But if you're faced with a very passive environment that's not changing at all, just leave things as they are. Do we do we know across the length of the DNA whether there are zones that are more prone to changing, whether the prone the areas that are more stable than others? Is that well, there's two ways of answering that question. One is over geolo- over evolutionary time. The answer is definitely yes, but that's probably due to selection. But what, why I suggested the sperm test is that's be- before selection. So you produce a billion sperm and then say, okay, where are, the, are there or are there not hot spots in the mutations in your sperm? And the, answer, and the same thing goes with eggs, by the way. <laughs> are there, where are the hot spots? And there are hot spots. There will be. We're not... 100% sure, but I, I hypothesize that there are definitely these hot spots and cold spots. And in other words, it's kind of like the evolution of evolvability. The, the, the mechanism which produces the variation in your sperm already knows where it is and is not allowed to mutate. Now, that's a very different thing from what is usually invoked by biologists as random mutations. Uh, so the very mechanism itself constrains the mutation. I, I think so, but that's a little bit of a heretical view. Maybe Eleanor has a p- view on this. Oh, look, I'm I'm coming at it from from the other end of the the other end of the approach. I think we do a lot of phylogenetic analysis um, to to aid in our protein engineering. So we we look at the evolutionary tree, we construct it, and we model it, and then we locate regions on that tree that are conserved. So specific amino acids that seem to have hung around for many, many generations. And we go, all right, they're clearly important for function. Um, and then we can look at sections where they do vary a lot and think, okay, that's the bit we can play around with without completely eliminating the function of our, of our protein or enzyme. Um, but as Charlie said, that's very much more the selection-driven thing rather than where exactly in the gene a uh, uh, change is taking place. Ah, so... Now, as, as I said, today's uh, fuzzy logic is brought to you by three complicated sets of chemical processes, some of which are random, some of which are not, and is there such a thing as random? And we might break to a, a form of life. Actually, this one is B-52s and rock lobster, because Ellen and I, and I were talking about lobsters before the show began. And our guest today is Dr. Charlie Lineweaver, and you are from the ANU School of Earth Sciences. And Astronomy and Astrophysics. And Astronomy, and Eleanor, and another chemical compound known as Rod. Ah, the rock lobster there by the B-52s, a classic uh, pop group from uh, a few years ago. And rock lobster, yes, and we don't have any lobsters in the studio, but we do have Dr. Charlie Lineweaver, who is a uh, officially a friend of Fuzzy Logic, uh, Eleanor, who is a Fuzzy Logic regular, and myself. Now, we were talking about the chemistry of life on Earth and how did it lead to the organisms that are currently sitting in this room 
And the Miller experiment is quite a famous one in uh, the history of chemistry, Eleanor. Yeah, so the Miller experiment um, sort of commenced uh, in the 1950s. Um, these scientists basically set up a, an intricate system of glassware, um, all completely sterile, uh, no bacteria growing on any of their surfaces. Um, and into this glassware they put uh, a concoction of um, water, methane, ammonia, hydrogen gas, um, things that they thought best represented what um, Earth might have looked like, um, sort of prebiotic, so before we had any uh, forms of life on Earth. And their, their goal was to see whether they could um, encourage the, the formation of biological molecules um, through this through this process of uh, getting a nice wet warm atmosphere of of different um, common chemicals um, that may have been around and then shooting little sparks of electricity um, which they sort of thought would simulate perhaps occasional strikes of lightning onto the surface of baby planet earth um, and they left this experiment running and uh, I think the, the methods that they would have had in the 1950s to analyse what came out of their little tap at the bottom um, would have been uh, a little bit, little bit behind what we would currently use, but they were successful in being able to identify uh, a handful of amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins, which are in turn the building blocks of us. Um, and then after about... I guess the experiment was, was certainly still running in 2007 um, and they checked back on it um, 55 years later and they had um, all the amino acids necessary for the formation of, of organisms like us. They had some sugars, um, they had the building blocks that we would sort of identify as being similar to DNA, um, so purines and pyrimidines. Um, and since then there's been a few variations on that sort of experiment where they've played around with different environmental conditions. They've mimicked what it might be like near a volcano, so a very sulphur-rich environment. And they've seen the formation of all sorts of different fundamental biological molecules. So this is one possible pathway to the early chemistry of life. It uh, certainly seems so. I mean, it's... it's um, kind of a, a big leap from those individual amino acids to something that is self-replicating and, and can respond to its environment. But the fact that we can get to a point where we have a soup uh, that, that does contain these very fundamental uh, molecules is, is pretty exciting. It's, um, it's amazing, but it's a long way from uh, being able to operate a radio studio. What's, what's your take on this, Charlie? Well, well, first of all, it was a very, it was a lot, it was an important experiment. And uh, the other thing to take away from it is it might be irrelevant because uh, the amino acids and the other, the pyrimidines and purines that they found in there, produced there, uh, are also falling from the sky in carbonaceous chondrite meteorites. So these are things that are produced somehow even beyond the earth and just fall from the sky. And uh, I, I strongly suspect that carbonaceous chondrites and their amino acids and their DNA precursors or building blocks are falling from the skies on every wet rocky planet in the universe so this is not something that the, in other words the ingredients for life are everywhere and so it's uh, not in retrospect I don't think it's such a it's, it's interesting to know that you can do it in a lab but you don't need to ah, so what do you make of the term panspermia then well, panspermia refers to talking about life going from one place to another to another. And what I just described are ingredients everywhere. So getting from the ingredients to what you might consider to be life is a, is a step we haven't talked about yet. 
So panspermia is a step beyond. It's, it's, well, it's assuming the existence of life elsewhere and then it's spreading from one place to the other. And I, I just talked about the ingredients for life, the amino acids being everywhere in the universe, but I didn't say anything about life as you might define it. Right, okay. So now from these compounds, these amino acids that Eleanor has just described, they're all from whatever, or could be the chondrite uh, meteorites. It's a big leap to the next step, isn't it? There is something that happens. What, what, are the, what are the defining characteristics of a chemistry that leads to what we call life? Well, uh, we're still working on that. That's a big problem, and it's a big problem because we haven't figured it out yet. And after we figure it out, it'll be a smaller problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it is still a big problem, and I should say that most people, because scientists haven't figured it out yet they then say okay well then some supernatural being has to do it i think maybe most of your listeners would believe that some supernatural being started life and as uh, scientists were saying well we're looking for a more naturalistic way of doing that but so far we haven't really been able to do that we've made i would call baby steps in that direction uh but uh you know for example uh you mentioned amino acids but proteins that you and I have in our body and that I'm using to move my lips with, uh, those are long stretches of hundreds, thousands of amino acids, but you can find oligopeptides, two, three peptides put together in these uh, carbonaceous chondrites, for example. But then again, you're a little bit further, you're hooking them together, but they're not really performing anything or doing anything that we can identify as an adaptation or something that helps them, themselves to reproduce. And that's what we're looking for, really. Autocatalysis is a fancy chemical word for, you know, you have a, a chemical cycle, A produces B, B produces C, and then C produces A again, or, or something of that nature. It get, can get a lot more complicated than that, but the whole point is you do something such that you rip, replicate the thing that you started with. And that's what autocatalysis is. And uh, you could think of it as a fire, for example. You start a little fire and then it spreads, it just uh, autocatalyzes the oxygenation of the hydrocarbons around it. And we call that a fire. Okay, so one of the defining characteristics of this chemistry is the ability to reproduce itself. Uh, I wouldn't use the word self, but almost everybody does because uh, I think does a fire reproduce itself? Yes or no? Rod, does fire reproduce itself? <laughs> yes or no, Rod? <laughs> I think okay. the answer's no, Rod. <laughs> you think the answer's no, okay. So, so then you'd have to then you have to say, well, what is self? And that's the problem I get into. I don't think I don't think life does reproduce itself. For example, when I teach this in, in class, I say I take a okay, I have a boy over here and a girl student over here. I say, I'm gonna put you in a hermetically sealed capsule, put you in outer space. Will you reproduce yourselves? And the answer is no, they will die. So life forms are inevitably and necessarily embedded in all the life forms and all the environments in which they, they were they evolved. And to pretend that they somehow are there's a self independent of that environment and independent of that integration, I think is foolish, but it's a very common foolishness. And you may even share that, Ron. Uh, of course, there, be, there will be no foolishness today. On, on there is, there always is, right? Come on, admit it. Admit it. Uh, uh, once I was foolish, but now I'm, I'm not. Uh, no, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, I'm. Uh, I, the word self. Let's look at it. Look at it very carefully before you invoke it, because we're so used to doing it, and I think it doesn't mean anything. Okay. All right. So what I'm trying to say then is, there is, there is a, a reproducing, or there is a. A chemical compound of some sort, or whatever the, whatever the chemistry is, and you have one beaker of it today, and you've got a 
uh, a truckload of it tomorrow. So it's able to make somehow the process produces more copies of it so that it... Well, life doesn't violate the first law of thermodynamics. That's the conservation of energy and mass. So you can't turn one beaker into two beakers without an end. Yes, but you so end up, you have one bacteria now and in a minute you have two and then... Right, and but what did, what did you have to do to put into that system to allow well, that to happen? you need the energy. You need energy, you had to have some water, you had to have some right. lipids, you had to have amino acids, you had to flow in and you had to have a flow out. So that's the important part of not use, thinking of it as an isolated bacterium one minute and two isolated bacteria the next minute. That's not what it is and it's crazy to think that way. Oh, but somehow the mechanism allows the the replication or the yeah. fire does for, that too. For, for one generation to go to the next generation and so on. So that would be, I, I would suggest, a defining one of the defining characteristics of a organic chemistry. I wouldn't. I wouldn't because uh, one way. To, let's let's go back to what a lot of scientists think about the origin of life. One way is to think of it as a, as an RNA world. So what you have in an RNA world is little pieces of RNA which can do two things. One is they have a function, they do something, I don't know, they grab onto something to get some energy, but they also auto-catalyze their own replication. They are, act as a template, and if there's a bunch of amino acids around, those amino, not amino acids, uh, nucleotides around, they can come stick to them preferentially, and then you have another pair. But that's a little like what a crystal does. So you can think of a crystal as a proto-proto form of life because the principle of having a template in a chemical soup in which those chemical soup acts as givers of the monomers, which then hook up in the right, the same sequence as the template, and then it breaks off and that well i've replicated a sequence of who knows what and uh, therefore it has has it replicated well you know you could uh, depends on what you mean by replication or oh, let, let, let's use the term auto catalyze then okay go um, ahead is that what you do? <laughs> well, well you, you've given me that term so uh, yeah, yeah, right, right. henceforth i shall never replicate i shall always auto catalyze no I'm, I'm just saying that we have to use words of vocabulary that can transfer to and transform from an abiotic world to a biotic world and if you insist on using biology words to try to understand the transition from non-biology to biology you're always going to get into trouble ah well, I am, of course, a non-scientist, so I'm, I'm bound to get into this sort of <laughs> trouble. Um, now, here's another one is uh, the use of energy, that uh, these things are able to... I'm, I'm going to get in Extract trouble. Extract free energy from the environment. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> free energy. Now, the diff now, just for you quickly, there's a difference between energy and free energy. Energy is, if you're at equilibrium and there's lots of energy, you can't extract any of it, and so it's dead. You have to be at non-equilibrium, and that essentially means there is free energy. And what that means is there is extractable energy, and it's a little bit different. All right, so that's like a sugar before you digest it. If there's oxygen around, yes, and, and but if the world is made out of sugar, no. Right, yeah, a pure <laughs> sugar world, yeah. It would be at equilibrium and there would be no free energy associated with the sugar. Only when you have sugar associated with oxygen do you then get the redox potential that, you, that enables you to extract energy from it. Okay, it's been it's been a long journey, but I think we've got two of our characteristics of, of the chemistry. Are there, are there any others, any others that I have missed? Well, you have to have, uh, well... This water, we have water right here. You and I are bags of water, and so we, tr we have a bag of water that we used to be fish, and so we used to have water all around us, and now we transport our bag of water on the land. Uh, life does that in general. It's, it's made out of even the 
you know, bacteria, fungi, any life you think of is something like 60% water. And then it has, uh, let's say, chan, spu, the, are the six elements that we like to talk about. C-E-H-O-N-S-N-P, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur, and phosphorus. Those are six elements, and those make up about 99% of any life form you care to think of. Ah, okay. And so those are the six most important ones, and you can usually forget uh, trace elements. Well, that, that might be a theme that we come back to, because uh, I think we might have a bit of a break and give you out there listening a bit of a breather. And <laughs> <laughs> because this is pretty, this is pretty weighty stuff that we're talking about here today on uh, Fuzzy Logic, and our guest is Dr. Charlie Lineweaver from the ANU School of Earth Sciences, and from the what was that other place? Astronomy and Astrophysics. Yes, thank you. And uh, Eleanor and myself, Rod, and I'm going to play a bit of world music today. Some things are universal. Music is one of them. That is a pretty funky blues player from Malawi, believe it or not. And I love that riff. Here on Fuzzy Logic, and our guest today is Dr. Charlie Lineweaver. And we're talking about the origins of life, the chemistry of life, and we're going to move into this thing called the phylogenetic tree. Eleanor, you used that term earlier. I did. I'm, I'm regretting it now because I have to try and <laughs> have to try and explain it. Um, no, look. So we've we've been talking about uh, the emergence of life from from our very fundamental chemistries. Um, but certainly in, in my line of work and, and perhaps another way of approaching the issue would be to look at the sorts of life forms that we have today um, and then work backwards. So we're, we're analysing, uh, in a sense, previous generations of, of different organisms. Um, we can use a, a process, uh, it's sort of a statistical analysis of, of different genes is usually the level we work on, but you can look at the entire of a, of a genome of a species and compare them across generations um, using so this. Could, could I um, maybe chip in with a, 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 an analogy because uh, Charlie I know likes analogies so if we looked at the types of car you can buy today there's probably what how many cars on the market thousands of oh, models. It's like at least four or five different coloured cars that's my understanding of how cars work. <laughs> but not, not how they work <laughs> but, but of the v models of, of car that you can buy going out of the car right there's hundreds of them mm. right so if you were to backtrack through all of that so they've got things in common they've got an engine they're using an internal combustion engine of some sort a gearbox wheels drive chain all that kind of stuff are we on the right track here or am i sort of on the right chain of logic log um, charlie um it's hard to say because uh, when you manufacture a new type of car um you are not intrinsically uh, fixed or there's not inertia to the types of cars. So you could, you could randomly introduce any, like you could jump to an electric car, for example. For example, or you can put three wheels instead of four, or you can put six wheels instead of In other words, that... So you don't have that continuity necessarily. That's right, because uh, DNA is much more conservative than that. It's, uh, it's uh, more like passing on a, a language to, okay. from one generation to another. You know, we, we don't speak the exact same language as, as Shakespeare spoke, but it's, it's, we call it the same language, and there are certain words have changed, certain words have not changed. And so I think it might be better to think of it. Uh, well, I, I like the analogy of, of cards. We would take a deck of cards, and then you arrange them in a certain sequence. And let's say you du duplicate that sequence, let's say 10 times. And then each of those 10 
decks of cards, which has the exact same sequence, that's kind of the analogy of the origin of life. So there's a sequence of genes. And then over here, one deck, we shuffle a little bit. Next deck, we shuffle a different way, different way, different way. So all of these get shuffled in different ways, but we can then compare them and say, hey, what was the original order of those cards? And if you have enough decks of cards that have been shuffled a little bit, you can regain that, you can determine what that order was. And that's essentially what we're doing with all life forms on Earth. We compare the genomes, the full genomes of lots of organisms, and we say, huh, chimpanzees and humans are, are have the same identical ordering of their of their cards or their genes at the 98% level and then we have 2% that varies and then we say well who the the or 6 million years ago the or the ancestor the common ancestor of humans and chimps which one of those 2% did it have and then we look at gorillas and we say ah the gorilla is a outgroup it uh, it has we look at the same 2% and say Ah, that gorilla looks in this region looks more like a human. So the human has the original genes. Uh, in this one, the chimp has the same one as the gorilla. Therefore, that was probably the original one. So what we're doing is refining the genome of an ancestor, common ancestor of chimps and humans that lived six million years ago by this type of, of process. So and then we just go back further and further and further. Millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, even billions of years, probably several billions of years to what is called the last universal common ancestor. It's called LUCA, the last universal common ancestor of all life that's alive on planet Earth today. Ah, so we, we're taking the diversity of what we have today and then we're extrapolating. Uh, is the rate of change an important thing? Are we putting a time on this or, well, is, it, or is it just going back to a common point? Well, we do have a molecular clock and so the rate of mutational change is uh, roughly regular, roughly even, roughly smooth. And so it, it ticks, you know, tick, 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 tick. Take, take, but over millions of years, so that variation averages out. So we, we, can have, we can date something to about plus or minus 10% or 20% with such a clock. So what is it, 3.7 billion or 4 billion years for, what? To, for life on Earth? Well, it, it, the life... <laughs> uh, the, so you're asking the question, when did life get started on Earth? And the answer is at least 3.7 billion years ago, but maybe earlier, probably earlier. You, you, when you find the, the earliest evidence for something, that doesn't mean that's when it got started. That means that's the earliest evidence you have. Well, it's, it's uh, an extrapolation, isn't it? Well, you, uh, well, I see a piece of paper here, and let's say you wrote this. and said, well, is this the first thing you've ever written? Probably not, but it's the earliest thing I have that you've written. So I say, you know, you started writing about 10 minutes ago, and that would be very wrong, wouldn't it? Well, it's a bit like the Aboriginal habitation of Australia. We know that it's probably 40, but it could be 50, 60, or possibly possibly more. Well, that, that, that's, well, I think the... the the best data on that is from, uh, I guess, uh, they looked at the way that UV radiation hits sand grains, and I think you go back to about 45,000. I think uh, it's not an... Well, anyway, we can talk about that at another issue, another, <laughs> another time. But 45,000 is what I throw around, but... Uh, I, so are we any closer then, just going back to uh, Eleanor's flasks the, uh, the, from the famous Miller experiment and the amino acids and so on, and given that we've already uh, said that there are multiple possible paths and you've mentioned the meteorite seeding and so on, my term, uh, 
it's a big leap then, is it not, to RNA, the, the chemistry to produce RNA? Is that a really big step? Do we have any idea how we got to that point? From from the building blocks to L- RNA? Yeah. Gosh, that's a bit outside the, the timeline that, that my work's on. Um, I certainly prefer looking at it from the from the top of the tree and working backwards um, rather than looking at the chemical building blocks and working forwards. Charlie, is it a useful question? I mean, yes, it is. I think it's a very useful question. So when when was the, you could ask when was the origin of humanity, and you say, well, I don't know, hundred thousand years, two hundred thousand years. When was the origin of uh, vertebrates? Oh, maybe. F- 500 million years ago, 550. When was the origin of bilaterally symmetric organisms? You can ask these questions about any type of group that you can identify. And so it's a legitimate question to ask when is the origin of RNA. The answer is we don't quite know. But what we're trying to do is biochemists, synthetic biochemists, are trying to figure out, well, how was RNA made in the first place out of these ingredients that we know are everywhere in the universe and particularly coming have fallen to earth in and still fold earth in carbonaceous chondrites and there you have to she mentioned pyrimidines and purines these are kind of like the building blocks of 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 rna and dna one piece of progress that we've made is you were now asking the question about rna rather than dna dna we have pretty good evidence that DNA came after or RNA evolved into DNA. Mm, mm, so now we can ask, well, let's forget about the DNA. Let's talk about the RNA origin. Similarly, when we look at life, we know that there are three branches to the phylogenetic tree of life. There are bacteria, archaea, and eukaryotes. And eukaryotes, we are eukaryotes. That just means we have our DNA in a nuclear membrane inside of our cells. And uh, we, are, we are pretty sure that eukaryotes came later, evolved from prokaryotes, prokaryotes of organism cells without this nuclear membrane and so then if we're interested in the origin of life we can just forget about all eukaryotes and just look at the prokaryotes as a matter of fact in my research i spend most of my try- time trying to get rid of research that has been done on eukaryotes because 95 98 percent of the research is on eukaryotes and that's what most people are interested in except for those of us who are interested in the origin of life so we have to concentrate on prokaryotes the bacteria and uh, so and so, so similarly we can say how did rna come about and we're ignoring dna completely when we do this yes. and uh, there are a couple of ways that you can do this it's very, they're very controversial but chemists are working on how in the world you get this to not only produce rna but get it to do something interesting like replicate itself ribozymes are something that you might want it's a nice word that comes from uh, uh, well, it, it, these are ribozymes. Are think they have zymes in the end of it. Therefore, they're doing something like an enzyme, but they are made out of RNA, and so they also have information on them. So it's a combination of an enzyme that does something and RNA, which is information, and so that fits the bill perfectly for what we expect was the origin of this before there was a divergence between function and information. Uh, um, so, do you imagine then, just say? for the want of a better place, just say our primitive pond full of these precursor chemicals, uh, do you imagine that at one point just the two right chemicals met and the, the right chemistry happened and then and then it just went from there? Or do you think it would happen progressively over lots of places at once? Is it even maybe happening right now? Are we getting that chemistry going on? right now and we're getting uh, primitive life generating today well, well i think it's important in the in the sentence you use you use the word it 
you said when two chemicals and then it did it and then it turned into life and so i i suspect that the evolution of life like the evolution of anything an eyeball a lung a fin these are very long things and they're proto eyeballs and proto proto eyeballs and proto proto so i suspect that to imagine a primordial pond with the right chemicals is not the way to think of it there were some chemicals that we can we can qualify and uh, figure out, try to figure out what they were, but then something happened, and then something else happened, and something else happened, and something else happened. There were probably thousands, if not millions, of steps to the production of random proteins and and polypeptides and nucleotides, and then oh, they, something had a property that made it a little bit more likely to attract a building block to itself and so then it was more successful at producing another copy of itself and so it, it, but that's that's just a tiny 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 fraction of the process that is necessary uh, to get to something that can uh, bark and fetch a stick or operate a studio yeah. I, I'm I actually I, I've, what I've done is I've fallen into the popular stereotype of the Frankenstein right you, you, you zap spark it, it to life and, yes. and suddenly it yes. wasn't there one moment and now it is there I don't think you've fallen into it I think that's the prevalent uh, view of how life got started among almost so everybody you, so you're not alone but I think it's erroneous I think that uh, it's kind of like people say oh the, when was the first human being and if you study that question the you know that that's a bad question. You could say, what's the first microphone? All right? And so you say, well, we got a microphone here, and then there were worse and worse and worse microphones, and then there were 20 different types of really bad microphones, and before that it was, uh, I don't know, somebody had a, I don't know, a, a, a cone that they called into it. Is that a microphone? In other words, there are proto-microphones and proto-proto and proto-proto. And keeping that in mind, the process of evolution, rather than a phase change between what we now call non-life and life, that that's misleading. So it could be a very elongated process. I'm, I'm convinced it is, but not everyone is. Ah, and this taps in, and I say this with great nervousness, actually, because last time uh, you appeared with us on uh, Fuzzy Logic Charlie, we had a conversation about the meaning of the word life, mm-hmm. and uh, yourself and Jochen uh, Brox both said that we don't have a really good enough definition of what life actually is and it kind of taps into that because saying there's this slow transition from something that was just a pile of precursor chemicals and eventually leading up to the 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 richness that we have now i would say the precursor molecules are very rich Oh, well, I mean, and I take away the word just from that. Uh, so you're already putting in value judgments, and that's what's important to get rid of if you're trying to talk about this objectively. Uh, well, I, I, My pile of molecules is better than your pile. Because kind of, <laughs> well, I, I, I can run a radio show, and you can't, you pile of amino acids that haven't even polymerized yet. What's wrong with you over there? Oh, this is how our chemists <laughs> abuse each other, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I had the uh, horrible realization that I'm actually made of chemicals, and what a, what a terrible thought. It's not a terrible thought. You should rejoice in that. You are made of the stuff of the universe, uh, of stardust. Isn't that wonderful? It's not something that's terrible. Or chemistry. What, what, <laughs> would you have to believe in, in a Christian God in order to be worshipped or something? I don't understand. This, this, I'm made out of chemicals, therefore it's bad. Oh, you should say, that's great. No, it's just all What else would you be made out of? Dark matter or dark energy? <laughs> Uh, could, what could, do you want could, to be made out of? <laughs> could be. Golf balls? <laughs> I could be just pure logic. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, no, let's not go there. Uh, I could be pure illogic. No, I'm, I'm just referring to the uh, the popular culture thing that says, you know, this thing is free of chemicals. You know, buy it now, it's oh, organic oh, oh, oh. and, and well, so that's, on. That's crazy. That's but, crazy. But that's Every- not... 
that's not even remotely science so we 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 won't go there <laughs> even though we just did but let's, let's retrace our steps and start again go ahead oh dear um, um, Charlie I've got a, a glass of chemicals here I'd like you to consume some for us now um, now I know your your thought on this having uh, talked to you on a few occasions on the, in the past but uh, uh, your one of the titles you carry is astrobiologist right mm-hmm. yes and so the biology that may exist outside earth and of course there's a lot of exploration going on mars at the moment and looking at the uh, uh, finding pretty good evidence that there's water there now or at least sometime in the past What's your take on the possibility of life outside Earth? Well, it, it's really hampered, first of all, because we don't have a definition of life. But as I think I told you before, I, I wrote a chapter entitled, We Have Not Detected Extraterrestrial Life, or Have We? And that or have we is because I was, as a physicist, I wanted to redefine life as something like a hurricane or a convection yes. cell. And if you do that, then we have certainly detected life beyond the Earth. Most people don't want to go there because they don't like that. And so, but still, we, we have to define, if we're going to look for something, we have to define it or at least have some idea of what it is. And that's that's still lacking, I think. So that's a problem. If, like I, I think I've repeated to, uh, if you ask a biologist, you know, are viruses alive? Half of them will say yes, and half of them will say no, and uh. the good ones will say, huh? <laughs> we don't know. And that, that, uh, that I don't know sense, I mean, we have to admit that we're not quite sure what life is, because if you don't understand how something ar- arose, then you really don't know where, what it is. If you don't know the origin of a fence, then you don't know why that fence was there, then... Well, well, okay. Let's 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 take it back to a primitive type of life, say a prokaryote or some equivalent. You call it primitive? They okay. call you primitive, bro. Oh, okay, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm primitive. I dream of being a. a You're prokaryote. better than they are. <laughs> Actually, um, you have more bacteria on you and viruses than you have cells in oh, your that's, body. That's true. So remember that. That means that's who you are. You're, it's not just these are foreigners. That's who you are. So I'm a walking what, ecosystem. Yes. Yeah, it's just like everybody, and so it just get used to it. It's a wonderful thought. All right. Let's say. <laughs> I mean primitive in the sense of time, not in the sense of... They're uh, still alive just as you are still alive. They well, have they, been evolving origin, for four billion years. origin is way Our ahead. origin is their origin. We used to be bacteria. <laughs> All right. Definitions aside. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not use words. Let's just hum to each other. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slash my wrists here and I'm going to... In fact, if, if no, I... No, you shouldn't be ashamed of this. You should be... You're using the vocabulary of your audience, and that's and that's what most biologists believe in yeah. as well. And so I'm just trying to bring up problems with that vocabulary, and that's, you know, that's that's legitimate, and you shouldn't feel ashamed of using those words. I'm just trying to, to say, hey, let's think twice about them. Yeah, I... Look, I think I might drop that line. We're running out of time as well because we've only got a couple of minutes to go here on fuzzy logic. But what I find interesting is... Um no, I'm not even sure I want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got, you're so shy. Yeah, can, you, can I try I'm, something, Rob? Yeah, Alan, it's, help it's, me. It's sort of a complete, completely aside from, from where we are now and, and the origins of life. It's sort of somewhere nice in the middle. And that is the idea that um, when, when an organism or when life is evolving, it is also affecting its environment. And so there's a feedback loop between an organism's evolution and what it's doing to its environment and then what that environment then feeds back and and encourages the evolution of that organism um like what what kind of implications for the complexity of life does that does that 
give us in terms of we've got we've got exoplanets that we're identifying that perhaps don't have oxygen rich um, atmospheres they're, they're lacking in particular things that we say yes you need this for life our version of life does that does that make the search more complicated because there's the potential that if there's something there it could build its own environment and, and start to look more like ours yeah well that that's that's essentially the Gaian model that James Lover came up with the idea is once you have life it starts to modify its environment so it makes it more habitable and uh, that's something that that's uh, a very controversial but I think a very rich field for further research and uh, for example we, we've recently found lots and lots of exoplanets and we've made lots of progress in that there seem to be one or two rocky planets in the habitable zones of other stars and so that's a that's a lot that's a much larger number than we had thought before so with all these wet initially wet rocky planets in habitable zones what are we to imagine evolves there and uh, it, the fact that we don't have oxygen in, in many of them or any of them is no problem because in the first two billion years of life on earth we didn't have any oxygen here very very low levels of oxygen so that's not certainly not a a biosignature that uh, can be trusted because if you look back on earth 2.5 billion years ago you would see no oxygen in the atmosphere very low levels so oxygen is not something it's a requirement for life it's a requirement for our kind of life I, you know we Take the, take the oxygen out of the studio, we're all going to die. But the bacteria that some of them are on us that are anaerobic, they're going to be fine. So it's very hard to figure out. Life is so diverse that it's very hard to figure out how to find it and how to look at the biosignatures in the atmosphere. But that's what we're trying to do. Uh, um, did, what, what do you think of... Actually, we've only got 30 seconds left, uh, Charlie, but uh, the idea that life could uh, use an alternative to carbon, like silicon. Well, uh, it's, it's possible, but let's suppose that the probability of having silicon-based life forms was the same as the probability of having carbon-based life forms. Let's just imagine that. Well, there's about 15 times more carbon in the universe than there is silicon, so there'd be 15 times more life forms based on carbon than there would be based on silicon. So, you do the math. <laughs> uh, so, uh, unlikely. Look... Uh, what a, what a rob it's been, Charlie. It's always, um, always a, a, lots of life, shall I say, in the studio when we have you uh, in on Fuzzy Logic. And always happy to put you on your spot for your preconceptions, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I'm, tr I'm trying to dispose of my, all my preconceptions. Uh, uh, we've been listening to Dr. Charlie Lion Weaver. And uh, by the way, Charlie, uh, you're a line weaver, maker of cloth by in your name. Weaver of linen, line weaver. Yeah. Line is linen in German. And uh, I'm a tailor. Uh -huh. <laughs> so let's let's make what we will of that. And <laughs> Eleanor, thank you for helping me out today. It's been great fun. Not a you? problem. It was uh, fun. <laughs> all right, plenty more coming up on uh, Fuzzy Logic. Stick around. Catch you later.